really Putin's desire and his understanding that if Russia is to be a great power again, uh, which is one of his goals, it really has to reestablish a sphere of influence over its neighbors. And of all of its neighbors, Ukraine is the most important. It is true that Ukraine and Russia do have a common history uh, that goes back, uh, you know, to the beginning of the Kievan Russian state. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. My name is Nicole Rivas, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Alexis Holowinski and Franz Ozilia. Russia's recent buildup of troops and expansion of military capabilities has put Ukraine, the United States, and European nations on high alert, fearing a possible imminent invasion. One reminiscent of Russia's annexation of Crimea and invasion of Ukraine in 2014. With the US and its European allies distracted with the repercussions of the COVID-19 pandemic, upcoming elections, power transitions, and other global problems, there exists a real fear that Russia and Putin could once again get away with violating another country's national sovereignty. What are Putin's motivations for this military buildup? How should the US and its allies respond? And what tools does the Biden administration have at its disposal to prevent conflict between Russia and Ukraine? To answer these questions and more, Joining us today on the podcast is Dr. Angela Stent. Angela Stent is Senior Advisor to the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies and Professor Emerita of Government at Georgetown University. An expert on U.S.-Russia relations, she is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. She served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council from 2004 to 2006, and served in the Office of Policy and Planning at the U.S. Department of State from 1999 to 2001. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Stent. Good to be on your show. Looking forward to it. We thought that it would be best to begin by briefly covering what exactly is happening in Ukraine before we delve into the diagnosis and prescriptions for the ongoing conflict. That said, could you please give our listeners a quick rundown on the developing crisis between the Ukraine and Russia over the last couple of months? Okay, so um, for a long time, uh, Putin and the Kremlin have been complaining um, about Ukraine moving closer to the West, the fact that it's getting uh, lethal defensive weapons from the United States. And they've also been very unhappy about, about what's happening domestically in Ukraine because President Zelensky, uh, the Ukrainian president who came into office vowing to make peace with Russia. Uh, there's been an ongoing conflict, of course, since 2014, uh, where people are still dying. Um, and he has, of course, hardened his stance towards Russia, and he's gone after Russian-owned media uh, in Ukraine, and he's gone after uh, one of the most prominent Ukrainian oligarchs, who is really Putin's man in Ukraine. Um, and so the Russians have been unhappy with him, and they're unhappy with the, the arms, what they see as an arms builder. Uh, so in March of this year, um, the U.S. and its allies noticed uh, that there was a great buildup of Russian troops near the Ukrainian border. And at that point, President Biden got on the phone to President Putin, told him that we knew what was happening, uh, and suggested that the two have a summit. And of course, they did meet in person in Geneva in June. And the Russians did withdraw some of those forces uh, from so near the border. 
Um, but then again, uh, since October, really, uh, U.S. intelligence agencies have noticed um, a significant buildup of Russian troops uh, near the Ukrainian border. Um, and it's not only just the troops, it's the tanks and the weaponry, it's the field hospitals. So they're looking at this buildup. Um, you see different figures right now. I think it's about 90,000 troops. Um, but recently, the intelligence agencies um, put out a declassified study saying that uh, up to 175,000 troops could be massed there. Uh, and so they're very concerned when you see such huge capabilities, you have to ask what the intentions are. Uh, and then in the past few weeks, the Russian rhetoric has been getting sharper and sharper. Uh, the Russians have uh, accused uh, Ukraine of, again, uh, wanting to take back the territories in the southeast of Ukraine that are currently occupied by Russian and Russian backed separatist forces, that they're trying to take them back. There's absolutely no evidence that that's happening, but that's what the Russians are warning about. Um, Putin penned an essay in July where he said quite clearly um, that Ukrainians and Russians are one people, um, that Ukraine really isn't a separate state. Um, and then Dmitry Medvedev, the former president uh, of Russia for four years, penned an article saying that Ukraine was a vassal state of the United States. In other words, the rhetoric has been heating up in the past few months, accusing Ukraine of these things and, and warning uh, that Russia would have to take self-defensive action if the Ukrainians acted too aggressively. Uh, and so that's really where we were um, uh, until last Monday, um, of course, when President Biden and President Putin had a virtual summit designed to deal with this issue. Yeah, so it seems Russia is doing a lot to increase its capabilities and giving very distinct warning signals. But why is Russia so concerned about Ukraine? Why is it willing to start a war and sustain potential devastating economic and geopolitical blowback over Ukraine? So I think you have to go back and uh, see what President Putin has said and written about this in the 21 years that he's been in office. Um, he has said, of course, famously that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century because so many Russians uh, were found living outside Russia when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, and you did have um, uh, 22 million Russians living in Ukraine. Uh, and so uh, some of this has to do with really Putin's desire and his understanding that if Russia is to be a great power again, uh, which is one of his goals, it really has to reestablish a sphere of influence over its neighbors. And of all of its neighbors, Ukraine is the most important. It is true that Ukraine and Russia do have a common history uh, that goes back uh, you know, to the beginning of the Kievan Russian state. Um, and so it's it's part of it, and, and as part of a demand, really, that the outside world recognize this sphere of influence, uh, it means that uh, Ukraine shouldn't aspire to join NATO or the European Union, that it should remain a neutral country, and that it should have a government that's friendly towards Russia. Um, and what Putin is seeing, of course, and this is partly a reaction to the Russian aggression, the annexation of Crimea in 2014, 
and the launch of a war in the Donbas region in the southeastern part of Ukraine uh, in 2014, partly as a reaction to this. Ukrainians have become much more pro-NATO, for instance, than they were before all this happened. Um, And so he sees this as a moment, I think, where he wants to insist that the West recognize um, that it can, you know, that NATO uh, weaponry and military advisors should not be on Ukrainian soil, and that Ukraine should accept the fact that it, at a minimum it should recommit to being a neutral state. Uh, so, the desire to be a great power, like reinstate its influence, um, and trying to sort of force Ukraine into being more neutral again. What is that really what's driving this iteration of Russian aggressiveness? Uh, we understand Russia has been excellent at hiding its intentions. And that said, what do you think Putin seeks to accomplish with these actions? Uh, what do you think he's signaling with this? Well, I think Putin is, first of all, looking around at the rest of the world. He's seeing a United States that is very preoccupied, first of all, with the COVID pandemic, but also with our dysfunctional political system uh, and all the polarization that exists in our society. He's looking at the major European countries. Germany has a new government that's just come in and is trying to formulate what it's going to do with Russia. France has an upcoming uh, presidential election. The French are all very focused on this already. Uh, The British are very consumed with the consequences of Brexit. So he sees a West that he believes is weakened uh, and that this is a good time when it's distracted uh, to strike um, and, uh, you know, to just, again, insist that NATO get out of Ukraine Um, And he understands that there are divisions in the Western alliance about the degree to which um, NATO should be operating, you know, in Ukraine, even though Ukraine is is not on track to be a member of of NATO. Uh, And so I think this is at this and and he sees that President Zelensky's poll numbers are dropping in Ukraine for a variety of reasons many of which have to do with what's happening domestically in Ukraine. And so he thinks this would be a time to put pressure on the Ukrainians also uh, to uh, bring in to bring to power a government that is more favorably inclined towards Russia. Uh, and so given that the West is distracted and divided, and given how Russia has acted towards Ukraine over the last decade, is it truly credible that Putin could install a pro-Kremlin regime in the country? And would the Ukrainian people even allow that? So I think that's highly unlikely. I mean, I you know, the Ukraine is much more united now in a kind of with a national identity and also against Russia than it was before the events of of twenty fourteen. So I, I I mean, to have a pro Russian government is unimaginable. It's possible that you could get a Ukrainian leader that would be willing to return to where Ukraine really was for the 90s and much of the early 2000s, which is, you know, balancing uh, Russia and the West. Uh, but even that seems seems less likely now. So um, that and, and that would, you know, and installing a pro-Russian government in Ukraine would be pretty difficult at this point. So I think that may be what the Russians want. But as you've uh, already said, their intentions really aren't clear. Um, and so, uh, you know, another, you know, possible goal here, and they're doing that, is to take actions that provoke Ukraine and then to have Ukraine um, 
respond militarily and as uh, and the analogy is with Georgia in 2008 when they provoked President Saakashvili, he took some military action and then they marched in. Um, to use a Ukrainian um, stepped-up military response as an excuse to invade or reinvade Ukraine. But of course, again, the intentions are very opaque. Like you mentioned earlier, President Biden and President Putin had a small summit on December 7th, and in the summit, Biden laid out the repercussions that Russia will face if it invades Ukraine again. So to the best of our knowledge, what are some of the credible economic and geopolitical tools the Biden administration has if, in fact, Russia invades Ukraine? And what tools are there that are not currently being used? So, you know, the tools are limited. Um, President Biden has said explicitly, we are not going to send troops to Ukraine, um, just like President Obama in 2014 said, uh, because, you know, the U.S. and Russia aren't going to get into a war with each other. So the tools, they're economic tools. Um so you can sanction um, uh, more uh, Russian oligarchs who are close to Putin. Uh, you can freeze their bank accounts. So you can take sanctions against individuals. Uh, you can take sanctions against entities, Russian banks cutting off their access. You can uh, sanction uh, people's access foreigners buying Russia's secondary debt, although that really doesn't impact Russia that much. Uh, it impacts the foreigners. Um, and so there, um, there are a variety of sanctions. The, the so-called nuclear option would be to cut Russia off from the SWIFT international payment system. But if you cut Russia off from that system, and that would mean, for instance, that a Russian who travels to Paris or New York and wants to use their credit card couldn't use their credit card. So for Russians, that would be pretty devastating. But it also impacts other countries, countries that do business with Russia, Eastern European countries who, for instance, get much of their energy from Russia. How would they pay Gazprom or Russian oil companies for that? So the problem with the SWIFT system is um, that, it, that it impacts the entire globe, not just Russia itself. Um, you could do a partial sanctions where some Russian banks, as I've said, could be cut off from the international payment system, but not all of the banks and not all other payments mechanisms. So there, there, there is a range of um, economic sanctions you can take. And in 2014, what the Obama administration did in response to the annexation of Crimea and the shoot down of the Malaysian airlines um, over Ukraine um, it, what it did was to impose sanctions on individuals, um, on senior Russian officials, and on Russian companies' access to international credit market to the international credit market. But it didn't go uh, as far as these more uh, these nuclear sanctions. And the other sanctions that are potentially there on the books would be to sanction anyone who who has dealings with Russia's energy industry. In other words, to sanction the entire Russian oil and gas industry. But that that again, of course, has a huge impact on people who buy, who get their energy from Russia. And the Europeans are still are pretty dependent on Russian energy. And the further east you go in Europe, the more dependent they are. So again, those sanctions have never been imposed but they potentially, you know, are on the books and could be. So aside from these like various but still limited economic tools that the United States has been using, what are America's European allies and NATO signaling regarding this Russian military buildup? 
So um, the NATO, I mean, NATO has said and the Secretary General has said we just had a NATO meeting before uh, the Biden-Putin call. They said, you know, there will be a strong reaction and that they will provide Ukraine with a military wherewithal to resist Russia. So they've said that there would be more military assistance to Ukraine in the event of an invasion. And the Ukrainian government is now trying to get some of these things delivered. Uh, Today, there's a story in the Financial Times saying that the Germans are holding back on agreeing to let NATO do that. Um, so, but that would be that would be one of the of the things that would happen. And I think the Europeans have said that they would go along with uh, U.S. sanctions. Uh, one particularly controversial issue issue is the Nord Stream two gas pipeline uh, from uh, Russia to Germany, which avoids Ukraine, which bypasses Ukraine, and it's under the Baltic Sea. And Ukraine and Poland, the Baltic states particularly, and many people in the U.S. Congress want to try to prevent this pipeline from operating. It's actually the construction has finished and it can be could be operating in a few months, providing it gets all the permits. So the Germans have now said more or less because the U.S. has demanded this, that if the Russians again go into Ukraine with a significant military force, they would then not they would shut down Nord Stream or they might never uh, allow it to open. But I think there's still some question about exactly how much the Europeans would follow U.S. sanctions. Uh, But right now we have the appearance, at least, of unity uh, between the U.S. and the European Union countries in Great Britain going forward. And most of the news coverage right now is covering what would happen after Russia invades Ukraine. But what tools do the United States and its European allies have to prevent Russia from invading the country in the first place? Well, I mean, the only tools they have really are, you know, building up Ukrainian resilience. In other words, letting the Russians know that if that happens, you know, they'll be supporting Ukraine. Um, And then the threat of sanctions, but not not completely explicit about what they are, but they just, I mean, if you look at the testimony of the Undersecretary of State, uh, Victoria Nuland, uh, to the Senate last week, and you look at some of the other things that spokespeople for the administration have said, you know, threatening tough sanctions. Um, so, uh, but th- but that's that's about it. Now, you know, we talk about a reinvasion. We also have to think about what 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 is it that we the scenarios are so one of the scenarios would be a limited military operation that is russia would want to take some more territory in the donbas region where you know it already has these two self declared republics um, and build a land bridge from that from those uh, entities to Crimea. So that would be a limited. The other scenario some people have been describing is kind of a, a whole scale Russian invasion going as far as Kiev and you know taking the whole country. That's very hard to imagine that that could happen uh, because then they would meet you know, massive resistance. And also the Russian population, they don't want a war with Ukraine. Um, They supported the annexation of Crimea very enthusiastically, but they don't want their sons and daughters coming back in body bags as they were in 2014. So I think that scenario is very hard to imagine. The more limited one, um, it is, you know, more possible to um, imagine that but, and as I say, the, the tools to deter Russia are limited. Dr. Stent, you recently wrote an excellent foreign affairs article called 
diplomacy and strategic ambiguity can avert a crisis in Ukraine. And we want to delve a little bit into that because we all know that Russia has always had a foreign policy based on keeping the world guessing as to what their true intentions are. So how do you define this type of strategic ambiguity within the Russia and the Ukraine context? Well, I think the Russians are still pursuing strategic ambiguity more than the U.S. is. I mean, I think what what you see happening now uh, is what I've just talked about. It's kind of the the threat of major sanctions and a major reaction without specifying publicly, at least, what that would be. So uh, there is a degree of ambiguity there. Uh, in other words, the Russians don't know how far the U.S. would go in imposing these sanctions, and they would have to to guess what might happen. Um, And I think on the other part of it, which is kind of providing the Ukrainians with the military wherewithal to uh, fight back against um, a Russian military incursion, um, again, there, there is some ambiguity there because I think they haven't signaled completely what systems they'd be using. Um, but... Um, uh, but maybe less so because I think the Russians have a pretty good idea about what the range of of issues would be. So I think that, you know, we, the Russians have the upper hand with the strategic ambiguity. Um, but I think, um, and, and, you know, one thing is not ambiguous, and that is that they know that there wouldn't be U.S. and NATO troops, you know, fighting uh, with the Ukrainians, um, although there are uh, military advisors there. So um, I, I think the, the U.S. still has a, a, a ways to go. And obviously, you know, we are an open society. Um, we we don't operate necessarily um, with that kind of strategic ambiguity that the Russians have, because as you say, they've been doing that for a very long time. And that's the part of their modus operandi is to try and keep people guessing. So um, I think it's a challenge to cultivate that kind of strategic ambiguity, but I think it's important to do so. And how, how, what would be the best way of the United States to cultivate this type of strategic ambiguity with regards to Russia? How can we take a, a page out of Moscow's playbook here? Well, I think it's just being, um, I think it's finding the right balance between, I mean, if you if you want to um, deter Russia, you have to at, at least make them believe that they're going to incur very severe consequences. So that you have to be you have to be plain clear about. But then I guess it's the nature of these consequences uh, that you can be more ambiguous about. And this may be a a broad question, but I'm interested in seeing what your opinion is um, with regards to what is ultimately the best way of the United States and its European partners to pre- prevent conflict in, between the Ukraine and Russia. Because it's it's a bit of a catch-22. It's either you, you know, they confront Russia wholeheartedly, um, you know, with economic uh, tools, or they run the risk of appearing to a peace Russia, which could mean that Russia could do this again, or, or use these coercive tactics again with other countries in the future. So, what's the what's the middle ground here? What's the best way, in your opinion, to handle this? I mean, it's just it's a huge challenge, and I think as long as you have the current regime in Russia, and I don't know what happens after uh, Putin is no longer president, the best you can do is to kind of manage 
a conflict like this and try and prevent it from, I mean, it's more or less a frozen conflict. Now, it's not completely a frozen conflict because people are still dying, but, um, and prevent it, you know, from becoming a hot war um, because you have two irreconcilable forces here. I mean, Putin and the people who support him are just determined to um, have Ukraine as a country that's subordinate to Russian to Russia's will, in other words, a country with limited sovereignty um, that, that first of all, that, well, it doesn't have full control over its territor- territory uh, because of these two self-declared republics. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's constantly um, con- very concerned about, you know, what steps the Russians may take next. Uh, and uh, the Russians, on the other hand, are very unlikely, the, the Putin regime is very unlikely to give up on its determination to prevent Ukraine from moving closer to the West. Now, what the Russians are demanding is a guarantee by NATO, an ironclad written guarantees that Ukraine will never join NATO. This is a little ironic because, of course, Russia signed in 1994 the Budapest Memorandum uh, guaranteeing Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty. And as we know, they have not abided by that. They want these guarantees. They're not going to get guarantees from NATO. NATO is not going to do that, even though it's highly unlikely that Ukraine will have a NATO perspective for the foreseeable future. But they also now want to have guarantees that NATO uh, military hardware and advisors you know, won't be operating in Ukraine, and they're not going to get that either. Uh, and and I think NATO is particularly concerned, and the U.S. is concerned to show that the U.S. and Russia are not going to negotiate over Ukraine's head. So, so I think, as I say, I think all you can do is is manage this. Now, if there is this meeting that President Biden has talked about between the United States, um, several NATO allies, um, and Russia itself to talk about. Um, European security, Euro-Atlantic security, and what one can, uh, uh, you know, how one can improve it, uh, then you you will you could set up, up up a process of discussion about how can we better interact with Russia going forward, and that could delay things possibly. It, there there might I mean if there are such negotiations, the NATO countries would have to be willing to. Um, come to an arrangement with Russia, which would at least go some way towards satisfying what the Russians are demanding. Now, immediately when you say that, of course, they've had all these uh, accusations, and particularly in the eastern part of Europe about uh, US making concessions to Russia, the fact that Biden has even sat down with Putin, that NATO is going to sit down with Russia is already a concession. I don't think it's. I mean, you you have to look about at this more as a negotiating process. Negotiations went on during the entire period of the Cold War. When you're managing a conflict, you really do have to make sure that it doesn't become a hot conflict. But I think it will be a huge challenge to find some way of defusing this conflict and getting the Russians to withdraw their troops. And we've seen since the phone call between Putin and Biden, that the Russians have done nothing of the sort. And the rhetoric has escalated. Putin has now accused the Ukrainians of genocide in the Donbass region, which is just a, you know, a ridiculous claim. 
Um, so it, it's, it, as I say, this managing this very difficult conflict, you know, between Russia and Ukraine and finding ways to support Ukraine that don't provoke Russian military incursion, it's going to be very difficult. Finally, as you also wrote in your recent article, Russia and the United States have always had a push and pull relationship. Um, cooperation and confrontation in tandem has seemed to be the model the two countries have followed for decades. If Russia does invade Ukraine, how would that model change? And how could the United States and its allies then credibly assure the Balkan states and other threatened countries that we have their back? So the problem with the Baltic states in NATO is when, when they joined NATO in 2004, the NATO members didn't seriously think that there could be a conflict uh, between Russia and the Baltic states. And we've come, alas, a long way since then, where that possibility has, you know, seems more likely now clearly than it was in 2004. And so there have been big debates about are the Baltic states defensible? And there are different views on that. And if you look at the public opinion data in Europe, in a country like Germany, a majority of the population does not think that the German, that Germany should come to, uh, you know, the Baltic states aid if they, they got into a conflict with Russia. So I'll just put that out there, that there's still questions about that. So I think the model doesn't really change. In other words, if we talk about U.S.-Russian relations being a mixture of confrontation and cooperation, and in some periods there's a little bit more cooperation, and in other periods there's much more confrontation, I don't think that model itself changes. But I think we would be, if Russia did send troops into Ukraine, and uh, then I think we are in a different era than we have been in the entire 30 years since the Soviet Union collapsed. You do have the, the limited conflicts in the frozen conflict in Georgia, which of course got unfrozen during the war. You have Nagorno-Karabakh, although that's now, I suppose you could say, unfrozen because of the Armenian-Azerbaijani war. And you do have the Transnistrian frozen conflict, but those have somehow managed to be contained. It would be much more difficult to contain a broader conflict like this, I think it would lead to a, a serious deterioration in relations between Russia and Europe and the United States. And I think at least um, in the from the U.S. point of view, you might see much more uh, you know, severe uh, sanctions on Russian certain and very high-level Russian officials. But I think that, that you would still have, and even in this phone call between Putin and Biden, they did talk, apparently, if you read the readouts, about areas where we are cooperating, which is strategic stability. We, we are the two, world's two nuclear powers, uh, superpowers. And even if our relationship is very conflictual, we have to regulate that relationship, the nuclear relationship, because it has implications not only for our bilateral relationship, but for prol proliferation. It's a, it has multilateral uh, impacts. And Climate change is another area where we have been beginning to work with the Russians, Iran at the moment with a nuclear deal. So there are a number of areas where we would continue to have to, to work with Russia. It would just be, you know, the relationship would be much more tense, but it would still be this mixed relationship. Well, thank you very much for an excellent conversation and for joining us today, Dr. Stent. Thank you. I enjoyed it. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.